death gets us to this place of like, not only like life or death, do I want to save my life, but like, what am I doing with my life? And is this how I want to spend it? Uh, hurting myself? And usually the answer is no. I want greater meaning. I want greater purpose. All right, Jackie, good to see you again. <laughs> uh, <laughs> good to see you. Yeah, thank you so much for being on here. Uh, I know we haven't seen you since middle school, but it's interesting to reconnect again on such a such a topic. Who would have thought? Fast forwarding, what is that? Twenty years. So, Jackie, for those of you that don't know you, please introduce yourself and tell us a little about about your work and who you are, and then we'll uh, we'll start from there. Yeah, cool. So. It is good to see you. And I am so happy to be here helping. So I'm an eating disorder therapist and uh, I also specialize in trauma and I work in Washington, DC and I am a therapist in private practice. I've worked in higher levels of care, such as inpatient, partial hospitalization programs and um, intensive outpatient programs. But right now I'm just working in my own practice. And I was really excited to talk to you, Dave, today a little bit about how death comes up in my sessions and in my work with clients and how I think what you're doing is really powerful. Thank you. And I think this is a topic or I know rather I know this is a topic that I'm I'm not too educated on. And that's why when you said you were sharing my podcast to your clients, I was interested and also surprised because I never put the two and two together. Uh, uh, you know, obviously I think death is related to any kind of you know, mental disorder in some capacity. I just never really put these two specific things together. So if you would allude more further on how death is related to your work, you know, we can uh, better understand exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. So I work primarily, like I said, with eating disorders and trauma and, and oftentimes have clients with co-occurring substance use disorders. Eating disorders have the second highest mortality rate of all mental illness. Number one is substance abuse. Many people don't know that. A lot of people think that eating disorders are, you know, like superficial, they're just about food or looking a certain way, when really they're they're very similar to substance use issues in that they're ways of coping with life and they're life-threatening. And and you know, I think it's important for not only clients but people in general to understand that, especially given the pandemic, you know, I didn't know I was going to go this way with this discussion, but we've been having somewhat of like a eating disorder epidemic in the pandemic, a lot of people being locked up at home. Um, so we're seeing like skyrocketing numbers as therapists right now, unfortunately, of people who are really struggling. And I find there's no way to really treat these disorders without talking about death, without talking about their severity, without talking about life and meaning. So I've referred quite a few of my clients to check out your podcast to just start opening their minds up a little bit more to grief, loss, life, meaning. It enters my office quite a bit and um, people are often surprised like like you, right? Like, oh, eating disorders. I didn't realize that was something that is linked to death. Uh, and it is. You know, I've lost clients before. I've lost people in my personal life, uh, both to substance use and eating disorders. I myself am in recovery. Yeah, it's it's a hard topic and 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 believe it or not a lot of clinicians who treat eating disorders even have a hard time talking about it. Uh, death or the fact that they're related. Death. And and the fact I think that they're related. I think eating disorder therapists 
often, and I don't want to speak for all of them, but the way I could speak for how I was trained initially, I was trained to, okay, if a client has a certain like severity, they need to be in an inpatient program to ensure their safety and that they're being fed and that their behaviors are being controlled uh, or else they're a liability, like your license is on the line and they could die. And that's really all we were taught in the beginning is like refer to inpatient, refer to inpatient, refer to inpatient. And then I had this experience as an outpatient provider of having all these clients like break down on my couch when I'm doing their initial intake assessment. And I'm saying, well, I'm going to recommend you go inpatient. And they're like, oh, you're like the 10th therapist that have, has told me that. Like, can't we just continue to meet? Like, I'm not ready for that. And then I had to sit there and really grapple with like what I was taught, which is like to tell them, no, I can't see you. Uh, it's either you go inpatient and you come back to me when you're done when things are less severe, or I, I can't see you at all. And after about like the 10th client crying on my couch, I'm like, what am I doing? Like, why is it that, like, is it really ethical? Like, is it really right to be leaving these clients, you know, on their own? Or should I lean into my own discomfort around their risky behaviors, help them lean into it and meet them where they're at? And, and have the hard conversations here on my couch, knowing that they may leave and something could happen to them. And that's the route I decided to take. And I'm happy to say that I've watched it help people save their lives by me not acting out of fear of death, but instead leaning into it with them and, and having those hard conversations. I've watched people turn it around and it's it's been really powerful. And it's been one of the hardest things I've ever had to do, you know, to have a caseload of people that, that could die is a challenge. And sorry, but those people that are coming in that you're saying are dying, are they aware of it? And are they are they coming to you because they feel like they're dying? Or is it something you have to bring to their attention? Gosh, most of them have no idea. Most of them, so, so similar to substance abuse, which I think people are more familiar with than eating disorders, right? Like they say in AA, the first step is to admit I'm an alcoholic, right? Like, and this this can kill me. Similar to that, eating disorders come with a lot of denial. Uh, in fact, like one of the symptoms of an eating disorder is denial of the severity of the illness. So a lot of times people come into my office and they're like, oh, I know it's it's not that bad. And I have to pull out medical research, journal articles, show them charts <laughs> to help explain to them that this is really serious. And I mean, it's your body that you're dealing with, right? Like the food that's going in, the food that's going out binging, purging, restricting, compulsive exercise, it all impacts the heart. So, you know, yeah, most of them don't know. And most of them think I'm trying to scare them. And it takes some time to really develop trust between me and, and getting them to work with a doctor that's keeping an eye on their heart, an eye on their vitals for it to really sink in. And, and once it does sink in, I think once they, they recognize I'm not just trying to scare them, I'm trying to help them live in reality. The work gets really good. The work gets really rich. And I'm afraid a lot of therapists miss those rich conversations because they refer out so quickly. And they refer out strictly because of liability purposes. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, you don't I mean, have to talk yeah. shit about their therapists, but I mean, hypothetically. Yeah, I think that's just kind of militantly like how we're trained. A lot of clinicians won't work with eating disorders if they're not specifically trained in it. You know, we're taught if if clients are of a certain severity, we have to tell them to get help or we can't see them, right? Like they have to go inpatient or we can't see them. 
So yeah, due to liability, a lot of people are afraid of, of someone dying on their watch. And I, I think I had to ask myself that question. Like I could bring up a case of mine. So like, this is the first time that it really like it came up for me is I was working with this case in 2017. We can call her Lila. It's not her real name, but and she came to me and she was about 25 and she was severely underweight and she was binging and purging upwards of eight to 10 times a day. And feel free to ask me any questions about like what that means. Well, binge, I understand purging, but bin- binging? Yeah. So binging is eating an excessive quantity of food in a short period of time. So like an example of that might be for her eating like three gallons of ice cream in 10 minutes and then vomiting it. So perhaps that's ignorant of me understanding that I didn't know that I understood the purging aspect, I guess, of an eating disorder. I didn't, I didn't, I never related it to the, the binging aspect as well. Yeah. Some clients actually just binge. Some clients just struggle with excessive binging. Whereas this client in particular that I'm talking about um, had a mix of starvation. She often was starving herself. And when she would eat, she would binge, like eat massive quantities of food and then vomit it up. So just think about that a minute, right? Like it's like clearly that is wrecking the body, right? To be starving your body of energy all day. And then when you do eat, to be shoving food down and then vomiting it back up is really scarring to the heart, to the throat, to many of our organs. So so she came to me very dangerous. Um, and of course I said to her, like I was trained, you know, I said, Lila, you know, I, I would love to see you. And she sighed. She said, I know what you're going to say. And I said, I'm assuming maybe you've, you've gone to some other therapist. She's like, yeah, you're going to tell me to go inpatient. And I said, well, I mean, I want you to know, like right now your behaviors are, and she's like, I know like high risk, blah, blah, blah. And I said, right. And she's like, but nobody will work with me. And I refuse to go to higher level of care. Like I've been to higher level of care. I've done it like four or five times already. It's not working. Like, please, like, I feel like you get me. I feel comfortable with you. Like, will you just be willing to give me a chance? And I went against what I was taught. And I was like, I did the whole spiel of like, you, do you recognize you're dying? She did recognize like, this is, you know, very severe that she could die. She understands uh, the heart consequences. And I said, you know, as long as you're willing to see a doctor um, every so often who's keeping an eye on you, like I'll continue to see you. So I continued to see her and she showed up and she showed up every week and fast forward about a year, things aren't getting better. Uh, Mentally and emotionally, she's like leaps and bounds ahead. She has all this insight. She has like better relationships with people. But medically, she's still compromised. Her weight is still really low. She's still binging and purging. So we had to revisit that conversation of, you know, I'm scared right now. It's it's been, it's been a year. Nothing's changed. I'm again going to recommend a higher level of care. She said, give me three more months. Give me three more months. We met with her family. I said, you know, at this point, someone needs to know. Like somebody needs to understand in your life what's going on. You know, God forbid something happens and nobody knew. So we looped her family in. We had a family session. You know, it was really emotional. They understood and they agreed. Okay, like just keep going to see Jackie. If in three months things aren't better, you will go inpatient. And she agreed. So fast forward, right? Three months. And now we're like a year and three months in and things are actually getting worse. And I realized, and we could talk about this maybe a little bit later, that 
these clients have trauma and they typically like sidebar were abandoned or had some sort of like loss or grief in their history. So unbeknownst to me, I think a lot of this was her learning to trust me. And and part of the process is like, are you going to kick me out? I think on an unconscious level, it's like, as sick as I am, like, when are you going to throw me out? When are you going to throw me out? And I, and I don't think she was consciously aware she was doing that to me, but I could feel it. And that's what kept me going. I was like, I'm not going to leave this girl. Even if she dies, like, I'm not going to abandon her. She's has a lot of like abandonment in her history. Like I'm going to stick by her side, no matter how sick she is. Like she's not going to push me away. So that was kind of what I was resting on, right? Three months roll around, like I said, and she's doing worse and she's refusing to go inpatient. So I said, okay, what are you willing to do? And these are diseases of control, right? So I'm trying not to fall into the trap of controlling her. And I say, what are you willing to do? And she says, you know, I just met this new guy who I really like and who, by the way, now is her husband. Um, We'll get to that. And she's, she's actually pregnant right now with twins and doing wonderfully. She's crushing it two years later and she's crushing it. But I met this guy and like, he's willing to like, you know, check in with me with my food each day. And I'm willing to see a doctor twice a month and I'm going to go see a psychiatrist and like, please, please just stick with me. And this guy ended up being like so freaking awesome. Like he was able to have these conversations with her around death and life and meaning and, and purpose. And we want to have a family one day. And, you know, just to kind of gloss over the rest, the next year she got better. She completely restored her weight. She has not binged and purged now. And I want to say in like about a year, she's like I said, pregnant with twins. She rarely really needs to see me. She only comes in. Um, I'm kind of like her, like uh, every once in a while when something pops up, she checks in with me. But yeah, I, I give her so much credit and and I thank her so much for teaching me of like what it's like to tolerate my own fear around my client dying um, and to really sit with them and not give up on them and and to let them lead the path and gain their trust. And I've had now countless patients after her do the same thing over and over again. And um, people might have thought I was crazy for continuing to see her when she was like on death's door. But like she's living proof that like, you know, sometimes we just need someone to sit there with us. You know, sometimes we just need someone to hear us and, and to have these hard conversations. So yeah, when I think of your podcast and I think about like death and and the role it plays, I, I, I think of how powerful it is in saving people's lives. That's, that's remarkable. And I think the courage it takes for you to embrace that and actually take that on when everything you've been taught was not to due to you know, I guess a level of professional risk that alone is without even understanding your industry like you do, I know is I'm assuming is extremely rare. So kudos to you. And I'm, I'm, I'm the way I'm hearing you speak, you're giving, it's amazing that how much credit you're giving her, which clearly she deserves from your story. But I'm, I'm, just, and I'm you holding that space clearly deserves a lot of credit too. So how much do you contribute the tactics that you took to her recovery in regards to your strategy, if that makes any sense. Like how much is it to understand your logistics and the way and your method is being there or how much is it of asking certain questions or how much is it of just them figuring it out? From my understanding from addiction to most problems in life, a lot of it is 
you know, yourself figuring it out. You know, I've never seen a therapist. I probably need to, but I, my understanding is that. Oh, you, you know, got to go, man. You got to go. Because <laughs> the shit I've seen and been through, I, I, I feel like so much would come up as from, you know, what I've gone through as you already, you know, you were very much in that life at that time when it happened to me. But I, I, my understanding from a therapist was always, okay, they're going to fix me. They're going to fix me, which is true. But I wonder how, like, my question to you is, this is a very long form question is, how much is it of you holding space and just being there? And how much is it of asking the right questions? I'm just curious about whether you can keep Lila as a specific study case right now. Like, what is your process in healing them? Or is there any consistencies you're seeing in healing these clients that people listening now, potentially dealing with the same disorder, can pull from that? Oh, gosh. There's a lot there. So uh, I don't even know what the hell I asked. I do. I, I, I do. And I, I think it makes sense that you're asking this question since you haven't been to therapy. And even some people may ask this who have been to like bad therapy. You know, growing up, I mentioned I had an eating disorder or I'm in recovery from one and, and treat them. And, you know, I look back at my own therapy and I'm like, I don't like, I don't know if you can curse on your podcast. I don't, <laughs> I don't, fuck, fuck, fuck. I don't like remember you remember like shit that my therapist said to me like I don't one bit remember like an ounce of like an insight or like a skill or I remember like and this may sound like I don't know like again a little bit like dicey like I'm talking about like you know holding the line of death but like I felt that she loved me I felt like she you know when I was going through like my own not death per se but like losses in my life I felt like she was like just like a solid person who like really cared. And I find in my work, many of my patients have interpersonal like relationship trauma, whether it's they've lost a loved one, they've been abused, uh, neglected, um, you name it. They, they come with some sort of relationship pain and what they do to their bodies and with food or drugs is really a representation of that pain. And, and really craving to be cared for and safe. So really to answer your question, it, it's just about like being with the clients, like, you know, actually caring about them. Like, you know, like I don't believe that you can work with a client you don't like. You have to really, really like and care about your clients, empathize with them, help them get curious about themselves and, and their own process help them look at like the life that they want to live. Right. So if we use Lila as an example, like, of course I, as her therapist wanted her to like go to inpatient care. Like I'm fucking scared out of my mind that she's going to die. I'm like, if it was up to me, I would like take her and, (laughs) but that's not what she wanted. And she didn't want someone to control her. She wanted someone to respect her. She wanted someone to respect her choices, even if that meant that she might die. I think a big part of her healing was knowing that like, I'm not going to give up on her, even if she's going to do something that I don't agree with. Right. And she may not have had people in her life before myself and her now husband to really stick with her through her own decision. So I think a big part of therapy is relational. I think it's about developing a safe, trusting relationship with someone so that you can then do so with yourself. Let me ask you, I'm sure it's, it's not apples to apples with every client or even yourself with your own experiences, but is there a common denominator for, for this type of, for these types of eating disorders? Is that, does it have anything to do? And I'm not presumptive in any way. I'm just asking, because you mentioned, you know, a lot of people think it's superficial, this or that. Is there a common denominator or consistency of people with these disorders that have to do with 
I know you said relationships, but does it have to do with, I don't know if self-esteem is the right way or some kind of trauma in the past where there was abandonment or maybe being mistreated by other people and not feeling good enough for yourself? Is that a common denominator or am I completely misinterpreting that? No, you're, you're totally hearing it right. Childhood trauma, man. So, so when I first started working with eating disorders, I think my, my, like my early treatment, I'm, I still go to therapy. P.S. Um, I'm a therapist that goes to weekly therapy. <laughs> so, so I practice what I preach. Um, when I first started practicing, even as an intern, like 10 years ago, uh, I quickly learned that everybody has childhood trauma. Everyone, like all, all the clients. Everyone in the world, like, and I feel like it's so much trauma we don't even know. Like, granted, All of us. certain traumas are like they like I know the trauma I went through, but I feel like there's traumas I may have went through before that that I don't even correlate. Exactly, exactly, right? Like you know, and we could be talking about like loss. We could be talking about um, physical sexual abuse. We could be talking about you know having a family member with severe mental illness that wasn't treated. But childhood is a really crucial time in our in our development, and lo- like you said, you know, we're developing self esteem, we're developing a sense of safety in ourselves, in the world, in in relationships, and trusting people and trusting ourselves. Like our model for how we relate to ourselves and others is developed in our childhood years, and the people that teach us that are the people who are within our circle. So like our parents, our caregivers. So you know, someone like yourself, you know. And I don't know if you want to even share anything like, you know, losing your dad at 12 years old, that has a significant impact on, on one's life. I myself grew up with a parent who had, you know, my parents got divorced when I was three. Uh, My mom had untreated mental illness. Like that totally shaped my lack of security in the world and in myself. I mean, it, it took a lot to, and still takes a lot to work on that and, and heal that. So. So yeah, like it's it has a lot to do with those early years and the relationships that that shape us. Yeah, I mean the early years tend to shape us regardless whether it's a you know disorder or not. In regards to you know people that have gone through what you've gone through and what your clients have gone through, is the mentality more often than not? Once again, I'm not trying to make compare any one person to another. Is the mentality I'm trying to think of the best way to say this? Do they understand? Do they think that it's normal? quote unquote, whatever the hell normal is, do they understand that where it's coming from? Or do they think like do they, do how many people that you speak to or yourself even grasp what they're doing and besides the severity of it and the relate and how much it's you know leading them to death or whatever it is, how much of what they're doing is understood as normal to them and how many of these clients or yourself for that matter relating it to a trauma? Like how many people have to discover the trauma to realize the cause of it? Oh gosh. That's a complicated one. So you're asking like how many of them kind of understand that this has more to do with food, more, I mean, more, more to do with other things than just food and body image. Like, right. Yeah. How much of your job is, you know, trying to lead them to that realization or do a lot of these people know what they're doing and why they're doing it? It's a mixed bag, you know, cause it all depends if I'm working with someone who's been in treatment before. Um, I like to tell people from the get go when they first come in, I try to explain my approach because I'll say to every client, because I think fit of therapist is so important. So kind of like my spiel when they first come in is always like, hey, let's see how today goes. Like if we're not a good fit, like don't worry about like, I'm not going to charge you for today. I'll give you a referral. Like uh, this is just like us getting to know each other. And when I share my approach, 
I think this kind of answers your question. I kind of like bring it up from the beginning. I say, you know, my philosophy is what's brought you to my office is a metaphorical wound or series of wounds. And that could be, you know, biological predisposition to mental health struggles. That could be difficult things you've been through in your life. And there's usually like nods happening, right? Like they're nodding, they're, they're following and difficult relationships under things you may or may not have talked about and the eating disorder along with maybe, let's say they come in with substance abuse or people-pleasing behaviors or pushing people away, right? I'll say all those things have become these like nice little band-aids to cover your wounds, right? Like it, it covers them up. It helps you from feeling the pain of the past or, or the hurts, right? But the reason you're here in this office is that you're recognizing that those band-aids are dirty, meaning like, not only are they just like covering the pain, they're also like in, infecting the pain more and more. And then the, I get more nods usually. <laughs> and you're realizing that like whether it's the eating disorder or the substance abuse or your people pleasing behaviors or you're pushing people away that like it's not actually really working in the long run for you. So my approach is to solely help you like replace those band-aids with like new ways of taking care of yourself and your feelings while slowly like peeling back, like what might be going on behind there and and working to heal that. And whether we directly talk about those things or we somehow kind of just like therapeutically address them, the long-term goal is to get to those wounds and actually treat those wounds so you don't need band-aids anymore. Sounds like you're dangling a carrot to unravel where it's coming from. Right. It's a good way of doing it, having them kind of figuring it out for themselves and asking the right questions and letting it come out naturally, I suppose. I feel like if I'm, if I'm being, like I said, I haven't been to therapy, but if someone's really asked, I don't, me personally, my own personality, I don't, I don't mind direct questions, but I feel like sometimes direct questions may think that you're presuming or, or coming at them very strong, which might therefore result in like a defense mechanism. I don't know. That's just my interpretation. That's so interesting. It's so interesting. And, and, I'm kind of going backwards a little bit, but you mentioned how when you're talking about the severity of what you know your clients are going through and how it's affecting their body and potentially leading them to death, whether it be by suicide or just deterioration of their body, has the mentioning of death, you know, kind of turned the conversation sideways or or hit anyone a certain way as as the as the bringing up of death led to someone really taking it seriously or at this point, you know, your clients, that doesn't do anything for them. Like, has a conversation of death had any impact on anyone you've spoken to? I think it always has an impact. It's just when. Like you said, Dave, like, I, I love your questions about, um, like, the process of therapy because kind of like I was mentioning with Lila before, a lot of the dynamic of these clients or of us in general are relational and it will play out in our relationship with our therapist. Like I was saying, I kind of think Lila was unconsciously like seeing how long I'll stick around, you know, the sicker and sicker she gets, like, will I stay there for her? Will I stay by her side? You know, or will I kick her out my door? So to kind of go to your, back to your question, like I think dynamics play out, like, uh, it all depends where we are in our relationship, how much they trust me. Um, you know, I think it usually falls in a combination of like where we are in our trust and our safety and where they are in, in being ready to absorb that knowledge. But it always, it always has an impact. We have to talk about it because people with eating disorders, it's kind of like OCD and substance abuse. They don't like, like a drug abuser doesn't like 
love cocaine. Like, like, like someone with eating disorders doesn't love restricting and like dieting and binging. Like that's not really what gives them meaning in life. So like, it depends how good the cocaine is. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) That that's true. That's true. Right. They may love it. But like when I'm like, hey, when you're 80 years old and you look back on your life, are you going to be like, I'm so glad I did this much cocaine or like, I'm so glad that I ate this many calories every day my whole entire life? Are you going to be like, I wish I helped people. I wish I had children. I wish I, you know, made that podcast. I wish I, you know, what is it that you're really going to care about when you're old and gray? If hopefully you make it there, you know, like. So, so I think that's usually the start of the conversation. It's like, are you really doing things that you care about? Is this really you? Death gets us to this place of like, not only like life or death, do I want to save my life? But like, what am I doing with my life? And is this how I want to spend it? Uh, hurting myself? And usually the answer is no. I want greater meaning. I want greater purpose. So I find a lot of people may land in my office because of their eating disorders and substance abuse. But by the end, we're you know, helping build their career or talking about a family or talking about, you know, being the number one, blah, blah, blah in DC and like all their goals in life. That's typically where it leads. I think that answers your question. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like I said, I barely knew what the hell I asked, but you definitely, you definitely hit the topic on the head and how I, I was hoping, you know, you'd address it. And I think that was great. And I think at the end of the day, uh, you know, you sent me a text message kind of going over, you know, what we think we might speak about this and that. And at the end, at the end of the day, it's trauma. I mean, that's why, you know, when you had a, you had a little bit of a hesitancy of, you know, wanting to be respectful of people that are dealing with death comparatively to your work, since they're not hand in hand, but they are. So I had trouble seeing any disrespect because it's trauma. And yeah, this is a podcast called Dead Talks, but it's kind of like trauma talks. And they're all kind of have their own relationships. And I think the way you can handle one trauma may have their similarities in handling another trauma, whether it's an eating disorder or death. And, you know, what you're doing is, as you've mentioned, I've mentioned already, is holding space. And I think dealing with, in my own personal experience with death, you never know, do I say sorry? Like, what do you say when someone lost something? And I think it goes back to just holding space. And it seems like you're holding space for these people. And just being there leads to healing in itself. And uh, I don't. I don't know. I can't really speak on you know your topic as much as you are, but it's it's definitely interesting the way they both kind of overlap. What and you know death and your work. It's like every year, like I think of you uh, around nine eleven, and and I still remember that day. And like I've heard you talk on some of your podcasts about trauma and how like we black things out. So like you may or may not remember this. I at the time didn't understand. I was dealing with trauma. Like I didn't understand like around the time of 9-11 that like what I was dealing with in my household of having like a dad that was absent and a mom who is really sick and and dangerous with her mental health. I didn't understand that that was like a loss and like, like a grief. And I remember when 9-11 happened and you lost your dad, like I felt so emotional. Like I felt so like, even one of our friends had lost like his dad, like right before that. And I was like, why am I so emotional about this? Like, like why, you know, even when I first started working with my patients, I was like, why am I so emotional about like their losses? And, and, it, and I think it's because it reminds me of like a different kind of loss that I experienced. It may not have been death. And this is where I don't want to be disrespectful, right? Like 
I'm grateful enough to have had parents survive cancer. You know, they're here, they're alive. But in a lot of ways, like I lost, I know what it's like to feel like they are dead, like they're not there. And there was just, maybe it's the trauma bond, maybe it's the like, my, me being really sensitive, but I feel a sense of like common humanity in in the grief process, um, whether it be actually losing a parent or uh, missing out on like certain things from your parent when you're young. And um, I feel so grateful to like help you on a little bit in your podcast to help my clients help themselves. Yeah. So I appreciate you saying that it doesn't feel like a disrespect because I, I would never want to. It's not. Complete the two. It's not. And what you, and and me personally and selfishly, the way you've, you know, you've consistently reached out, it, it means, it means a lot. And I, I, we've never had a chance to actually talk about more about you. And it's always, every time you reach out, it's about me, me, me. And at the end of the day, you know, this is something that I've never had the opportunity to really get deep onto what you've gone through. And you're not being disrespectful or miscorrelating anything we're talking about because even though I had a tangible loss of my father and you haven't had a, that tangibility, like a physical loss, but loss is loss. It's the same thing with trauma is trauma, whether it's death or an eating disorder. Obviously they're not apples to apples again, but they're very, they're, there's a similar impact uh, from the way I see it at least without a you know clinical understanding of it all. It feels... But, yeah, loss is yeah, loss. It like, it, it's a breakup. Like when you lose someone during a breakup, like, yeah, okay, that person didn't die, but it, it, in a sense, it feels like a death because there's a loss and that person's not in your life, either whether they're an absent father or you just got like lost someone's relationship in the middle of whatever. It's a loss. And it doesn't always right. have to be physical to impact you clearly the way it's impacted you. So, you know, you've, 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 you've dealt with uh, a sense of death already without physically losing someone. I think that's what pushes me to be there for my clients. You know, I don't want to create that loss for them again. I want to stick by them and it works. So, yeah, I mean, you <laughs> so, are. so there's something you, to it. You are. And uh, I think you have, I think you have a lot to be proud of just, like I said, from out without understanding your field and uh, not being able to speak at it from an experiential or expertise. I mean, just from my understanding, anecdotally, it, you're already doing steps that I'm assuming a lot aren't. And I can understand the fear of, taking these steps for the good of your client, for the good of people out of your heart and taking these own professional risks, that, that, that's incredible. Seriously, that's like you're already an outlier in an industry that I don't even understand. So regardless, I think you're taking steps that are courageous and it seems like you're doing it in a way that's really helping people. So um, I'm happy that you came on here and shared that because you know, besides the fact that whether people talk to you from here or not, I think you've shared a lot of information that, you know, you've taught me, but more importantly, hopefully connecting with people that are going through what we've discussed right now. Um, and I, I don't know, I'm, I'm definitely proud of you. <laughs> it's nice to, mm-hmm. to reconnect. You have a lot to be proud of and, and confident about, and I couldn't be more happy to have had you on here. Oh, the feeling is so mutual, you know, like keep sharing and your experience. I think, you know, like, the bits that you share on your podcast are so helpful to people and so proud of you too. Like, it's so cool to see you taking something painful and making something, you know, beautiful out of it. 
I'm trying, you know, and I think uh, there there are a lot of similarities in what we're doing, but I'm not putting myself on a pedestal of your professional expertise because uh, I'm not at your level on that aspect. Oh this my is, God, is... I will fall from that pedestal. <laughs> Knock me off the pedestal. Hell no. Please, no, I'm saying you've, you've put Knock way more off. effort. Knock you put me. way more effort and have a lot more in your arsenal than I do. I'm just a, nor- I'm just a, I'm just a schmo from no, New Jersey. No, you. That- yeah, no, I mean, you. We're both smoking New Jersey. <laughs> Listen, we can stroke each other right now, but I'm just saying you're doing a great job. And I want to, th- I want to thank you for being on here. So, um, just to, just to, I mean, we can go. I think I feel like this is another. We could find other topics to even cover deeply on another episode. So I feel like I'll even bring you back on should you ever want to, and you know, find even different avenues of what you're going through and what you're working with because I feel like there's so many different topics uh, with lessons. And, I'm so happy to help. Yeah, so many I'm different so angles we can go on. But um, is there so you're, I know you're in Washington, you work in Washington, D.C., but do you do any remote um, work or is it you prefer face-to-face? I primarily do in person, but I do do remote work. Yeah, right. Like, are you asking in terms of like my like professional availability? Yeah, or, like, I'm just, I'm trying to plug you in right now just because I, I feel like, you know, who knows, like you said, there's people that are maybe looking for therapy or have a therapist right now that they don't vibe with and maybe someone's listening to vibes with you. So if you want to, Put yourself out there like that, please do. Otherwise, just oh, you're this. so sweet. Yeah. So what I would say is, I am probably like ten people over my capacity already. Um, but I am, I am a big believer in helping people get good care. So if anyone ever wants to like contact me in terms of like resources, my caseload's way full. Uh, one day, my hope is to have some like therapists working with me who can do the same type of work. Right now, like if anyone wanted to reach out, like who listens to this episode and is connecting with what I'm saying, I'm always happy to help people find someone unless a spot opens up on my caseload and we're a good fit. That would be cool too. But yeah, I'm always happy to share information and resources. Uh, California has a lot of therapists. Um, I have a network of therapists there. So um, I know LA is where you're based. Yeah. um, If anyone wants to reach out, uh, they can. I'm just some little old therapist in DC, but um, I'm happy to impart any support that I can. All right, beautiful. Yeah, well, we'll uh, I don't want to put you on too much overload, but if there's an opportunity for people, <laughs> maybe one person, whoever may connect, maybe we'll put your information out there. We'll discuss that after. But Jackie LaRusso, thank you so much. It's so good to connect with you here. And I can't thank you enough for taking the time out of your busy schedule. And uh, I can't wait for people to hear you. So thank you again. Awesome. Thanks, Steve.